Second Samuel, chapter 20, at verse 14. And he went through all the tribes of Israel unto Abel, and to Bethmaacah, and all the Burites. And they were gathered together, and went also after him. And they came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmaacah. And they cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart. And all the people that were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then cried a wise woman out of the city, Hear, hear, say, I pray you unto Joab, come near hither that I may speak with thee. And he came near unto her, and the woman said, Art thou Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said unto him, Hear the words of thy handmaid. And he answered, I do hear. Then she spake, saying, They were wont to speak in old times, saying, They shall surely ask counsel at Abel. And so they ended the matter. I am of them that are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Thou seekest to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why wilt thou swallow up the inheritance of Jehovah? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. The matter is not so, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name, hath lifted up his hand against the king, even against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said unto Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to thee over the wall. Then the woman went unto all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. And he blew the trumpets, and they were dispersed from the city, every man to his tent. And Joab returned to Jerusalem unto the king. Let us pray. Let's go with Father, we thank you that we can come here today. Lord, we become sinners. The Lord, you have opened up the hearts of men and given us a heart of flesh. Lord, I pray that you would take away the crustiness that we still have. Open our hearts to your word as it is preached today. Be with the preacher as he preaches and help him to speak towards the truth. Help us to hear the word. Give us ears to hear. Lord, allow your spirit to be upon us. Lord, we pray for those in this little body that we can hear that we do not know you. But today will be the day of their salvation. That is Amen. It's rather, rather an awkward passage that I've just read in your hearing. Awkward at least for me to discover, to discern. And of course it's, it's my habit to, uh, my privilege, my habit to cry unto God that he would uh, open my mind and eyes to see as we progress through this particular portion of God's wonderful and holy truth, what it is that stands out, what it is that, that he would have me to bring before his people. 
And we can imagine as we look at this passage, we can be wondering, as I was, am I supposed to speak about how it is that Joab set up his troops in order to besiege Abel, in order to capture Sheba, this rebel, this one who uh, had rebelled against David. You will remember the uh, occasion of this at the beginning of the chapter and how that even though they had just come through a terrible civil war, costing many lives, and the son of the king was killed, even by Joab. And they separated, and this particular individual, Sheba, the son of Bichri, blew the trumpet and said to your tent, O Israel. He was calling for a division again, calling for schism in the body, if you will. Calling for the troops to stand once more against one another in battle. Is that what the Lord would have me to preach on? I thought not. Then we read uh, about this woman in the city after these battlements are put in place and being put in place, this woman, a wise woman, we are told. How she cries out of the city, crying for an audience with Joab. You'll remember, and I'll remind you if you don't, how that Joab had taken over the command. He became general once again. David had set him aside, most likely because of the fact that he went against the king's wishes and slew Absalom, his son, his darling son, if you will. But Joab here is back in his pit place, and he is... It butchered a mason in order to retain that place as general of the host of Israel, David's army. But she cries for Joab to come near, that he, she might speak with him. And he did come near, and the woman asked if he was Joab, and he said yes. And she said, hear the words of thy handmaid, and he answered, I do hear. And then she offered this argument against Joab besieging the city of Abel, and she asserted that this city had always been a favored city, part of the inheritance of Jehovah. Indeed, she refers to the city as a mother in Israel. And why is it that you're going to batter this city down? Why is it that you're going to storm the walls? and destroy this city. Joab came back to her with the defense that this wasn't his design at all. That he only wanted Sheba, the son of Bichri, who had fomented this additional, this another rebellion against their king, David. He had lifted up his hand against the king. He says, just throw his head over the wall and we'll be satisfied and leave. Is that what we're to speak on this morning? This uh, conversation and, and this determination on the part of Joab to have the head of this rebel, to throw it over the wall. Do we want to look at the details of 
beheading. I don't believe so. But the woman, this wise woman, remember, she said, his head shall be thrown to thee over the wall. We will do what you ask. I will go to the people. She went to the people in her wisdom, we're told. And they did cut off Sheba's head and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew the trumpet, calling his troops, recalling them, and taking them away from the city and returning to Jerusalem unto the king. So what is it that is contained here for a lesson for the people of God? Well, it struck me, three words from the lips of Joab. Three simple words in response to this wise woman of Abel. I do hear. I do hear. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you've said. I have heard your argument. I will hear your argument. I do hear. My ears are open. Speak on. They cast up a mound against the city, we're told. And that mound, building up dirt most likely, piling it up against the rampart. The rampart is simply the walls of the city. And all the people that were with Joab battered the wall. In the margin, it says that they undermined it. These particulars remind one, perhaps, of how it was <clears throat> that the armies that were besieging Babylon, as we read in Daniel, of how they came in. Under, they didn't actually undermine the walls, but they came under the walls through a waterway and surprised the armies of Belshazzar, the king at that time. So here they are battering the walls, undermining, trying to undermine the walls that they might have access to the city. This wise woman intervenes in all this and she calls out to Joab as we've said, as we've mentioned, as we've read. And he is listening now. He says to this woman, please keep in mind that this is a woman inside the city calling out to the general of the army of the king. And he says, I do hear. Woman, I'll give you an audience. Is this the same man that just slew, butchered a Mesa? And who, of whom we have read that he butchered others? This one who is a valiant soldier and general of the army of Israel? The army that belongs unto the one who slew Goliath, is this the same Joab that's saying, I'm listening, I hear, what do you have to say to a woman? He is the same man that we have read of in uh, chapter 14 when he wanted to come up with a device to entice David to bring his son Absalom back, he went to a wise woman. Those are the only two instances in the Old Testament where we see in the, in the scriptures where we see that term wise woman, except in Proverbs 14.1. 
which simply says that every wise woman builds her house up. And this wise woman, I can, I can argue, wants to build her house up in the sense of keeping it from being torn down. But it is interesting that outside of that proverb, that this term is only used twice, and it's, they're both of them in 2 Samuel, and both of them with connection to Joab. What kind of a man is this that he's now going to listen to this woman? I do hear, he said. Speak your mind, I do hear. Is this bully? Is this general? Is this valiant soldier? Is he a, a feminist? I don't believe so. But what's going on here is the question that comes to the reader's mind, perhaps. It came to my mind. We, one would have thought that he would be a chauvinist, a misogynist, right? Such a man as this. It called to mind to myself, at any rate, my, my own father now, I can excuse him because he was raised in a Catholic orphanage and he didn't have a favorable opinion of women because of the treatment that he received from the nuns. And so I suppose that is why he had the attitude that he did, why he was a something of a chauvinist or a misogynist. It was always interesting. My twin brother and I used to go with him in our later teens, bowling. We enjoyed the three of us bowling together. And we were all pretty good. But my father insisted whenever we would see any, t any bowling on television, we'd see women bowling, and he would insist that he could beat those women. These women were averaging over 200 a game. We were carrying averages of around 180. But I wouldn't have imagined that I could beat any one of these women that bowled every day, every week of the year. But my father, in his chauvinistic belligerence, would not allow that one of those women bowlers could beat him. I had a similar experience playing tennis. I was uh, about 35 years old at the time, so I wasn't in my prime, which even when I was in my prime, wasn't all that good. But I, I, was, I was invited to play, making a foursome. I was waiting for one of, one of my friends from our own church at this conference. And, and I was asked if I didn't want it because they only had three. And I said, well, okay, I'll play until my friend comes. Well, he didn't show up for some reason, but we ended up playing a, a doubles. And, and this girl on the other side, I think she was about 17, fresh out of a tennis camp, and to my mind, playing like Chrissy Everett, if you remember who she was, these two other guys said, well, we've got to go. And she says, do you want to play? <laughs> what a humbling experience. I wasn't foolish, as foolish as my father. I had no idea, no thought, didn't even imagine. I managed to take my serve once. And uh, I, was just, I was just embarrassed that I wasn't giving her much of a game. 
But it didn't bother me so much losing. But is this what Joab is? Is he somebody that's going to say, I'm not going to talk to a woman. You send, you send your, your mayor or your, your council or somebody, some men for me to talk to. No, he said to this woman, I do hear. I want to hear this female citizen of Abel. I think it's a big deal. And it stood out, perhaps because of my history, but it stood out to me. I do hear. And she makes a wise argument for the city, for its defense, its protection, its being allowed to continue. And Joab said, yeah. You throw out the head of Sheba, and we'll leave you alone. We'll go away. She went to the city council. In her wisdom, it said. She went to the city council, if I can use that term. And she told them what Joab had said. Evidently, these men in the council, for one reason or another, they were ready to listen, willing to listen to this woman. I find it amazing. She makes her argument. Josephus, in his somewhat biographical novel, writes that she said to the citizens, and I don't know how he, how he knew this. That's why I called it a biographical novel. He writes what she is supposed to have said to the elders of the city. Isn't it remarkable that she even had an audience with them? But she was a wise woman. And I would suggest that they knew she was a wise woman. And they wanted to listen to her. She said to the city council, to these men, will you be so wicked as to perish miserably with your children and wives for the sake of a vile fellow and one whom nobody knows who he is? And will you have him for your king instead of David, who hath been so great a benefactor to you and oppose your city alone to such a mighty and strong army? That sounds reasonable. Josephus may have something there. She may have spoken words such as that. But in such a patriarchal culture as that that we find, especially in the Old Testament, we witness this wise woman being listened to by Joab, a general, and by this city council, these elders, these men. She certainly is not alone. There are others. Actually, numbers of women in the scriptures that we are introduced to through that means that display in the narratives a certain independence in speech and behavior. Think of Deborah. She came to my mind. You remember that we're told in Judges, chapter 4, that she was a prophetess. A prophetess, not only a prophetess, but she was a judge, a judge in Israel. Who would ever have imagined that we would have women judges? But here's Deborah. And we find in, in Judges in the fourth chapter, we find how that she was called, called by God. 
to go to Barak and to ask him, has not Jehovah, the God of Israel, commanded, saying, go and draw unto Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulon? And, and God said to him, she's asking again, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, that, that tyrant that had taken over Israel and that was running the show in Israel. She's asking Barak, didn't you get word? I was given to understand that you got a word from God. Why haven't you been doing it? Why didn't you do it? And she went on in the ninth verse of that fourth chapter. After Barak had said, well, I'll go if you go with me. Can you imagine that? A man of the head of the army of Israel in this particular place saying, well, I won't go unless you go with me to this woman. She says in verse 9, I will surely go with thee. Notwithstanding, the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for Jehovah will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so he did. Another woman that we see in the scriptures. Not depending on man. Not depending on a man. But we speak of J.L. In the ninth verse. I'm sorry, the, uh, the uh, ninth verse. That's right. That's where Deborah tells Barak that uh, Jehovah will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then we later read about Sisera running after Barak and his men have overwhelmed them and they're fleeing and Sisera is running and trying to find a place to hide. And J.L., the wife of Heber the Kenite, says, come into my tent, I'll hide you. And there was, a, there was some kind of an agreement, some kind of a truce between Heber the Kenite and Jabin, the usurping king over Israel. So Sisera went into her tent. She gave him some milk. We don't know if she put something in it or if it was just the warm milk, but he was soon asleep, laying in her tent. And we read from Deborah's song what she did to Sisera, a woman. And this a general of the opposing army. Blessed above women shall Jael be, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked water and she gave him milk. She brought him butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the tent pin, took one of the pins of the tent, and her right hand to the workman's hammer, and with the hammer she smote Sisera. She smote through his head. Yea, she pierced and struck through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed there, he fell down dead. She drove that tent pin through his temples, pinned him to the ground. The honor given to J.L., not to Barak, given to a woman because you insisted on me going with you, Barak. 
Blessed above women shall JL be, and Barak gets no honor. Unhappily, there are also wise women who are not godly. And we see them in the scriptures as well. They have used their wisdom or their wiles or their cleverness for evil. Such a one was Jezebel. You've heard of Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, king of Israel. And it is said in scripture that Ahab did that which was evil in the sight of Jehovah above all that were before him. And you can read the, the behavior and the kings that were before Ahab and how wicked they were. And yet he did evil above all that were before him. And I think we can fairly say about Jezebel that she did that which was evil in the sight of Jehovah, even above her husband Ahab. She was a wicked woman. And you remember the account perhaps of Naboth's vineyard. Ahab had set his heart on the having that vineyard. Naboth wouldn't sell it to him because it would be destroying his inheritance, the inheritance of his father's. So he wouldn't sell it to him. Ahab became so saddened and so depressed, we can imagine him pouting. We're told that he laid down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. Pouting, perhaps weeping. He behaved as a spoiled child because he couldn't have Naboth's vineyard. But Jezebel had an answer. She devised a plot. She took the matter into her own hands. She devised a plot for obtaining Naboth's vineyard by having some liars come forward and accuse him of blasphemy. And then he was judged. Naboth was judged. And then he was stoned to death. Jezebel came back to Ahab and says, you can go and take the vineyard now. Go ahead and buy it. Naboth is dead. And it seems, as she took the matter into her own hands, that practically speaking, that Ahab, at that point in time, abdicated his throne to Jezebel. She became the ruler in practical matters, in practice over the kingdom in place of her husband. This is what has taken place in our day in thousands of churches. For multiple decades, the men of the church do not behave responsibly. They don't take the responsibility to themselves. And ultimately, they turn over the business of the church to the women of the church. This has been going on, as I say, for decades or more. And I would submit that the men are more blameworthy for their abdicating their responsibility than the women are for taking it. But this wise woman of all Baal stood as a mediator between Joab and the city council. A wise woman was given a hearing by the council, by the men of the city of all Baal. That is very striking again when we reflect upon the time and the culture 
the culture in that time, in that place. We would be reminded that the last few verses of that chapter tell us that this is not to be teaching us that women are to rule over men. It's simply that there are wise women and it's simply that they should be given a hearing. And I think that we're told this, that men rule in the last few verses of this chapter because we read, Now Joab was over all the hosts of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites, and over all the Pelethites, and Adoram was over the men subject to task work, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Sheba the, was scribe, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and also Ira the Jairite was chief minister unto David. Just the point, these are all men. A woman had been listened to. She was a wise woman. But still we have this, these anecdotal uh, verses reminding us perhaps that the men still are the ones that are to be in office. The women are not to lead men. Their counsel, their wisdom is often God-given wisdom. Wisdom from God to women. And perhaps men should behave more like Joab and say, I hear, I do hear. Rather than being dismissive. There's a passage in the book of Ecclesiastes in the ninth chapter that has striking similarities to this account in 2 Samuel 20. <clears throat> it is written in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, verses 13 to 18, I have also seen wisdom under the sun on this wise, and it seemed great unto me. There was a little city and a few men within it, and there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Doesn't that sound familiar? Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. We're not told how. This is Solomon writing this in Ecclesiastes. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his word, words are not heard. Some commentators, I discovered, treat this story in Ecclesiastes 9 as, as sort of a parable or an allegory or something of that nature. Some insist that it's probably a case in fact. Whichever it be of these, these are the words, the inspired words of the preacher, the son of David king in Jerusalem. It's not hard to imagine that this account of all Baal, that history, could have easily been transmitted to Solomon by David himself, by a number of different persons. Did Solomon perhaps hear this from his father David, from his mother Bathsheba? relating what she was told about it. He could have heard it from Joab or Abishai or some other. And that could even account for why this account speaks of a poor man. 
Solomon may have recounted it after it got to him through a couple of channels, recounted it as it was a man rather than a wise woman. Not accusing Solomon of chauvinism, just because he had 700 wives. But it could be that he was transmitting this account that he had been told in his, in his youthful manhood. And he related it in Ecclesiastes. Could have been transmitted. The verse, verse 17, which follows the account that I just read in Ecclesiastes 9, the verse 17 states that the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. The crying or screaming one cannot hear. You can't hear when somebody's screaming at you, can you? Sounds like mob rule, doesn't it? You can't hear. And if you're screaming or crying out, you can't hear what they're saying. The crying or screaming one cannot hear. His mouth is, is open so wide that his ears are covered up with it. And he can't hear. That's called arguing. It's called arguing to the point of screaming and crying and hollering and making no sense, not even, being, not even having our words heard. Hengstenberg, one commentator, suggests that an example of that is to be found, an example of the right way is to be found in Isaiah 42. You remember these words, the servant of Jehovah is being spoken of. And God, through Isaiah, says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry, nor lift up his voice. There's our example, the servant of Jehovah. Will not cry, nor lift up his voice, nor cause it to be heard in the street. He will speak softly. He is the meek and lowly one. And he will speak softly and his words will be heard. Matthew Henry made the point when he said passion, and he means passion by heat and vehemence, will lessen the force even of reason instead of adding any force to it. What a lesson that is for us to keep us from foolish screaming and crying Lifting up our voice instead of reasoning quietly. Commenting upon Isaiah 3.12. In Isaiah 3.12, there's something of a, a forecast of, of what took place in Israel. In 3.12, God speaks through Isaiah, says, as for my people, children, this is prophecy, this is God's promise because of his displeasure with his people. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. 
O my people, they that lead thee, cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. You're going to be led by women. I'm going to put a woman over you. I'm going to put women over you because of your disobedience. But Leupold, the commentator, in commenting on that passage, says, in the absence of good masculine leadership, in the absence of it, in the absence of good masculine leadership, tyrannical women have taken over. Apparently, such cases as Jezebel and Athaliah would be good examples of what the prophet had in mind. You remember Athaliah? How that she even killed her own grandsons in order to become queen? But it was fulfilling this threat from God in Isaiah 3.12, wasn't it? Women shall rule over them. And so did Athaliah. She was thwarted by God and, and some of his people. The priest, Jehoiada, hiding away Josiah so that he wasn't slain when she slew multitude of the king's, her own son's sons. She slew them so that the throne would be available for her. And she sat upon the throne of Israel for five or six years. In Isaiah 3.12, that verse that we just read about that threat, children being oppressors and women ruling over them. I believe it's bookended by verse 11. That's the 12th verse. It's bookended by verse 11 where God pronounces, Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him. And verse 13 afterwards where judgment is stated, Jehovah standeth up to contend and standeth to judge the peoples. Consider, I ask again, how many churches, in many churches, men have abdicated their God-given responsibility as leaders. Now that does not prove that women are not capable of ruling. In fact, I believe that it could be demonstrated that they are capable of ruling. But that's not the issue. The issue is that's not according to God's appointment that they do so, even as it wasn't according to God's appointment that Athaliah sit on the throne, or that Jezebel overrule Ahab, and so on. I'm just saying that women are just as smart. Women are just as wise. And that they can, they do have the capability but they aren't given by God the privilege. He has determined that it would be men. It doesn't agree. Even though they are capable, it doesn't agree with God's will for them. It's judgment we read in that chapter. I think that Matthew Henry put this all together rather well in a remark and comment. Matthew Henry said, it seems none of all the men of all Baal, none of the elders or magistrates offered to treat with Joab. No, not when they were reduced to the last extremity. They were stupid and unconcerned for the public safety, or they stood in awe of Sheba, or they despaired of gaining any good terms with Joab, or they had not sense enough to manage the treaty. 
But this one woman with her wisdom saved the city. Souls know no difference of sexes, Henry goes on. Though the man be the head, it does not. Listen. Though the man be the head, by God's appointment, it does not therefore follow that he has the monopoly of the brains. And therefore he ought not by any salik law, which means outmoded, archaic, he ought not by any outmoded law to have the monopoly of the crown. Many a masculine heart and more than masculine has been found in a female breast, nor is the treasure of wisdom the less valuable for being lodged in the weaker vessel. That law that I mentioned, that Matthew Henry mentioned, is a law, that, an antique law that excluded women from inheriting land or succeeding to the throne. But I think Matthew Henry has the point here. He understands. Men are appointed, designed, and appointed by God to lead, but that doesn't mean that women can't be wise, can't have brains, can't be brilliant, and can't be used of God to deliver the people uh, like we see in this instance with Abel. If we choose, if we choose not to listen to our wise women, if we choose not to listen to our wise women, we may be great kings, but we are sorry fools. Let us pray. Our Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy wisdom, for thy grace, for thy mercy, and that thou hast granted wisdom to whomsoever it pleased thee to do so. Thou hast also granted responsibility unto men to be the head of the woman to be the elders of the church. But, O oh Lord our God, keep the men from being fools and from not listening to the counsel, to the advice of wise women. To say with Joab, I do hear. We ask that thou would open our ears by thy grace and for thy glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.